Today's podcast is brought to you by Metrology.net. Metrology.net now supports power supply calibration. So if you're calibrating them manually, it's time to upgrade your lab to Metrology.net. Software that works for you. Find out more at Metrology.net. Hey everybody, welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I am your host again today. On the show today, we have the team from Qubit, specifically Michael Johnston and Mike Brown. Uh, Both work for Fluke, but they're the Qubit managers. So Michael Johnston is the software portfolio product manager at Fluke and his extensive experience in calibration metrology and measurement uncertainty was honed at Fluke, Northrop Grumman, and Simcoe, also coming from the U.S. Army metrology programs. And he also holds a BS in applied mathematics from Empire State College there in New York. And then he's joined by Mike Brown, who is the software metrologist and Qubit product owner for Fluke there in Everett, Washington. His previous roles include technical manager of the Fluke Park Laboratory and Everett Primary Electrical Laboratory, as well as technical manager of the Everett Service Center and lead metrologist for infrared radiation thermometry and thermal imaging metrology, with over 25 years experience in calibration and metrology, beginning in the good old United States Marine Corps, Ura Mike. Well, without any further delay, let's get into this conversation I had with the Qubit team to find out a little bit more about what what is going on with Qubit and what is it all about. So let's get onto that conversation with the gentleman from Qubit. Thank you for listening. Team Qubit, welcome to the to the podcast. <laughs> we have uh, Michael Johnston and Michael Brown. We're going to call Michael J. Michael and then uh, Mike Brown, Mike. So just so no one gets confused going forward, I know I probably I'm, will. So. I'm sure we're all going to get confused. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we there won't be too many directed questions except for here in the beginning anyway, uh, because we, we'd love to start out finding out where you guys came from. You know, obviously, we know you you work on the Qubit team. You're also with Fluke. So can you kind of give us an idea, um, maybe starting with Michael J. Uh, let us know a little bit about yourself or how you got into metrology. Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. I always jokingly, you know, quasi jokingly say that I got into metrology by accident. Um, I started in the army, uh, back in 2007, I was, uh, signing up and didn't really have, you know, a, a solid idea of what MOS I was going to go into. And I was at maps and the career counselor, he said, well, what about this job? And I said, well, what do they do? And he pointed at the phone on his desk and he's like, you see that? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, you fix that. And that's not at all, at all related <laughs> to calibration. Uh, and, but I was a ham radio operator, you know, I was a math guy and did a lot of, with electronics. And so it, you know, sounded like a good enough fit. And so uh, I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? It's five years. Why, why not? Um, and even going through basic, like no one knew what the heck a 94 hotel was. And sure. everyone I asked, they were like, I don't know, man, I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, but it turned into this really good fit. Um, so I was in for five years and then 
when I got out, I got a uh, third-party calibration lab working for Simcoe up in the Seattle area. I spent my last two years in the Army on, on JBLM, so stuck around up here uh, when I got out. Spent two and a half years there, and then I went to north of Grumman and worked there uh, in the electrical DC low-frequency lab, primarily working on Metcal stuff. Uh, and so then after a couple of years there, Fluke hired me uh, on the technical support team uh to support the electrical hardware and the software uh as i'm you know learning to use all their stuff coming in over right over the right. first few years and uh then i've kind of just been been moving around in fluke and ending up now on the the software side of things so yeah very much accidental uh but it's been a really good fit um my degrees in applied mathematics and um you know i have a lot of that kind of tech stuff outside of career-wise and so it's been a good combination of things i'm good at and enjoy doing so as you've moved into the more software realm do you miss the bench at all do you get back oh, to gosh, the bench no. sometimes <laughs> oh, okay. um, i am responsible for the the metcal procedure team um and so i sure. still get to answer the you know the bench type questions uh on that that group but um yeah no i don't miss being on the bench there's just I, the the level of like challenge and unique questions like that's fun about it but having like you know i need to get this many pieces out of the lab and when i worked at simcoe it was like most days were on site and i just man just let me sit down and do some work yeah, now working from home challenge. i don't even want to leave the house so definitely don't <laughs> want to go on the bench i know right yeah on site is challenging that's that can be a drain for sure Definitely. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Yeah, similar to Michael, I I joined the Marine Corps uh, and I actually went in open contract uh, oh. because I, I went in uh, on another thing at the time called the, the Marine Corps College Fund. And that was a requirement uh, was to go in open contract. So I graduated boot camp, went to Marine Combat Training. And a uh, week before I graduated, they came out and said, here are 6492 test measurement, diagnostic equipment, calibration, and repair technician. Does that sound right? And I said, I have no idea. So, uh, you know, I'm open contract. I went to uh, I went to Cal School in Albany, Georgia. Uh, I was after uh, after the Air Force Base in Colorado closed, but before Biloxi opened. Uh, right. And so, yeah, spent some time. Uh, mostly in Southern California, Okinawa. I uh, got some shipboard cal on the USS New Orleans and the USS Essex. Uh, and then when I got out, I went to third-party calibration in Arizona. Did uh, all kinds of cool stuff on site, you know, uh, embedded uh, programs and things like that. And, and then I joined uh, Fluke in 2007 uh, after my wife and I visited some family here. Uh, we saw the trees in the mountains and we decided we'd seen every shade of taupe in Phoenix that was possible. Awesome. So it was time for <laughs> something new. <laughs> uh, and yeah, with Fluke, I, uh, I, I've been, you know, the majority of the time in metrology, I uh, worked in the service center, uh, developing Metcal procedures and programs, worked in the primary standards laboratory, uh, uh, managed metrology teams uh, in both those labs. Uh, and it's been a, a great deal of time uh, with uh, infrared metrology and helping set up an infrared standards laboratory and uh, programs from you know minus 15 degrees C up to 
2700 degrees C. Uh, so that's, that, that's a, that's a really interesting area. Oh man. I, I, do you guys allow tours? I'd love to come do a tour of that for the school. Yeah, they, we, we, we could, uh, arrange a tour. We'd have to double check any restrictions and policies for, for COVID. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Time. But, but yeah, we've, we've got, uh, uh, we facilitate tours, uh, of our primary standards laboratory, uh, and some pressure manufacturing and things that we, we have in, in one facility. And then we have our infrared, uh, primary standards lab in another facility. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Whenever I hear, when I hear you guys talk about being on the Metcal team, like I, like my first instinct is just to be like, like to give you guys a hug. Cause it's, it can't be always sunshine and, and rainbows. Cause people got to give you guys a lot of heat. You know, it's uh, when when you have a software that's 30 years old, <laughs> like, I, I mean, it's crazy. Like, I was born the same year that Metcal came out. Wow. And so I jokingly say that the two best things to happen to metrology in 1989 were me and Metcal. That's so, awesome. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, it's it's crazy that forward or I guess really reverse compatibility of you know, we always say if you took a procedure you wrote in version one in DOS, you could yeah. run the same procedure in version 10.5 we released last year. That is not <laughs> like that's not how you do software for one. <laughs> and it's uh, some of the areas of the code. It's just like we, we don't touch it because at this point, it's just magic. And, oh, right. and there's there's a lot to to deal with anytime there's an issue to fix or any of that. It's it's not an easy thing to maintain. Well, um, you guys aren't dealing always with advanced users either. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's gotta be, that's why I said it's gotta be just frustrating at times, but I, you know, I've, I've used it at quite a few uh, places I've worked and then also trained people that use it. And so, yeah, I mean, how long it's, it's gone on and, and really, I mean, it's, it's done well. Yeah. I, I think that it very much was designed to be that, that really entry level way to automate. Right. I mean, it was designed with the technician in mind, not a software engineer, not a, a programmer, even someone who could just say, I want this particular thing to happen in a single line and, and just let me do it. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of great functionality in there that, yeah. that we've tried to, to build on. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. Well, going f kind of forward to the more current projects and, and why you guys are on here, you know, looking at outside of automated procedures and, and talking about qubit. I love the first the first uh, note that you put on on our uh, kind of like our pre questionnaire type thing. Why? But I, I know as we were doing in our little pre-interview before this, you know, I've, I've been around enough and I help enough labs and seen the, the scary parts of calibration out there to understand why this is extremely important. But what, do you mind, you know, in your own words, as the team from Qubit, let us know the origin, the, the why behind it and why you, how did it happen? How did, who, how did it come to fruition? Yeah, so um, we, back in, in 2019, um, I, I think would be really when it kicked off for Cubist specifically, but for a couple of years before that, we had been developing a new software. 
and it was basically our, our next generation calibration automation platform to eventually replace MetCal. And, and some people have, have heard of it. It's called OneCal. Uh, and it's, it's still around somewhere. It's still one of my products I'm responsible for. Hmm. Uh, but the, the idea behind OneCal is that it's going to be, you know, one solution for, for all disciplines. And there were some key areas that we focused on in developing that. Uh, and one of them was being really easy to create procedures and create um, tests to run. And as we, uh, back in 2019, we, we had a program where we were trying to launch this and get it into customer hands and get people using it and start, uh, start pushing it along, you know, into the, into the market. And what we really found is that uh, nobody wanted it. <laughs> um, we had spent two years, you know, without any real customer feedback in that process, um, which from a software development standpoint is not the right approach. Right. Um, and so as we put it into people's hands, we were really proud of, you know, there's a lot of great things about it. And, you know, instead of lines of code, it's building blocks and dropping chunks of, of um, behaviors into a procedure. And that's great. And that resolved, you know, the problem of, well, it's too hard to write Metcal procedures. But what we found was the question was always, well, aren't you guys just going to give me the procedures? Like, I don't want to write them at all. Um, oh. And so what we found was what people really need and where the time is really spent is the research and the development and the gathering of information to put into a usable state to get to the point where I would even sit down to write a procedure. <laughs> yeah. I'll kind of toss over to you, Mike, because that's, that's where I just stopped doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that key piece there about the information, uh, it was, was really the, the eye opener. And, and the analogy would be, you know, that, uh, as far as writing an automated procedure and getting tests running, you know, it's super fast, super intuitive, easy to use, and people love that part. Uh, however, if, if you looked at something like, um, you know, uh, your your tax software, right? It knows the tax rules. It helps guide you through the forms. It asks you questions. Um, but for but before you can even use TurboTax, right? What do you have to do? You have to go get your W two. You've got to go get your mortgage interest statement. You've got to get your 401k. You got to get, you got to go gather a whole bunch of information from a lot of different people. And all that information is in different formats. And you can't even begin to use the software until you have all that information. And in calibration, it's the same thing. You know, what are the specifications? What is the resolution? What are the test points I'm going to test? Where do I find it? Um, and so they have to gather all that information and, you know, there's, you know, there, there's, there's still, uh, you know, 200 CD audio oscillators out there, you know, that, that were built in the thirties and forties. Where's that documentation? Okay. You know, there's, there's companies that no longer exist. Now you can't go to their website and find a PDF. So, you know, but somebody, somebody out there somewhere has access to the information or took a photocopy or, 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 or something right to where, um, that, that information exists is just not readily available. And so that's really, that was really the big inspiration was to start with making all the information available and then turn that information into structured data that, uh, results in actionable 
actionable calibration data information so you can do something with it so you can you can calibrate with it immediately you don't have to you don't have to build it out yourself gotcha meaning automation as well is that what you're specifically talking about uh, not not the automation step as of yet but uh you know if we look at things like uh finding the specifications determining the test points based off of a method calculating the tolerance um there e even just in there there's um you know there's some difficulty because not all specifications oh, yeah. are written the same um the vocabulary is not uniform you know when when linearity is specified is it terminal or is it best fit straight line you know there all of these nuances uh, in specs and so uh we want to do that up front so that when test points are selected the tolerances uh, are already done uh, and and also the test points that are selected comply with whatever reference document you know for referencing an asme or an astm or whatever the case may be um why do all of us in calibration have to get a copy of it and study it and learn it and make mistakes and have people point them out and go read you know, like why can't we just figure it out once uh and yeah. all of us do it the same way right yeah and and even uh to go even further, like the, the first thing that came to mind was the not only the resources put into developing procedures, but sometimes wasted resources or false resources, because the development of procedures I've seen sometimes involves, hey, I'm just going to print off something from GuideUp and we'll handwrite some things around the procedure. And, you know, it, I, I couldn't I mean, you guys are definitely um that's a, a great way of thinking about it because I'd have, I've just seen so many bad things and, and, um, that lack of knowledge that we're working on fixing in the technicians and even in management that's out there. And these are the people that are advising customers, helping people create test points for, you know, their vital processes, you know? So I, I really, I really like that you know, that angle of it is making sure that the, the procedures, test points, tolerances, especially are, are what's called for, I guess. So how many people are participating? I see it all the time. I, I get your newsletter. I, and I, I, whenever I see the numbers of procedures, it just blows my mind. So do you just have people actively, um, providing stuff back? Like how is, how is the whole project working? So I'll I'll hand it to Michael here in a moment on the the details of uh, the content curation. But uh, essentially, we have a we have a couple of input mechanisms. Uh, we we look for specific categories or types uh, that we can go through and, for example, find every torque wrench uh, on planet Earth. Right. The, our goal eventually is to have the calibration information for every calibratable instrument on Earth, and. Um, that team goes through, uh, curates the information, uh, and loads it up. So specifications and mm -hmm. uh, method analysis and you know ranges and resolution, uh, et cetera, into a common data format. Uh, and then the, another way that we get, um, you know, a backlog or items that are of interest are we have a bulk upload uh, functionality that people can upload. Uh, user manuals or specification data sheets. You know, someone someone has, you know, some copies of some things uh, on their on their personal computer or on a thumb drive or on a SharePoint site or something, uh, right. and they can just like grab, uh, you know, a whole bunch of 
documents and upload them. And, and our team will actually go through and catalog them and sort them and tag them with attributes uh, so that we can make them available and ultimately uh, digitize them. But on the, on the digitizing process, uh, Michael can speak better to that. Yeah, so that was kind of the the major my major contribution to this early on um, was I actually worked with that content metrology team that we have, um, which was a half a dozen people, and we have a, a third party vendor that we also use to do some of that work that we train how to interpret. Um, metrological data mm. and so they uh go through that and you know look through old catalogs and pdfs of data sheets and pretty much anywhere we can find it um and and they um take that and put it into this structured format that we developed um it was very much like a you know in the software world we talk about the mvp the minimum viable product mm -hmm. to get to a point where we're getting some you know validated learning and so this this data format we have right now is very much an MVP. It's, you know, it's pretty simple. Uh, it can't capture a lot of the more complicated things in its current state, but it's designed to do things very quickly for those simpler uh, devices. So for things like a torque wrench, we can get thousands of them at the same time and get those loaded. Right. Um, and what, um, so we gather all that information and then we also have quality checks that occur on a randomized sample within that. And we're using an, an ANSI quality document um, to define, you know, the sample size to say, you know, we have this level of confidence in, in the data there. And, and that's again, part of that metrology team, uh, their workload is doing those quality checks as the work comes in. Um, so that we're getting multiple pairs of eyes on, on this at any, any time. And then one of the kind of unique things compared to approaches we've taken in the past, and especially compared to um, Metcal that's made this really effective, is when you think about Metcal procedure, the whole procedure, top to bottom, has everything specific to that configuration. And there's ways to get around that. You know, you can have some, you know, if statements to say, well, if it's this model, then we're going to use this tolerance. And if it's this, it's going to use this. But we've completely split out these data types in qubit to where a spec is a spec and it exists separately from the test point selection method. And so we can define that method once and we define that spec once or, or, you know, however many of each of those we have, mm -hmm. and then we can combine them dynamically to say, all right, well, I want to take this spec, but now I want to create my own method right? My company wants to do six points instead of five. And now everything that that can apply to, I get the test points and tolerances for those dynamically all at once with a single definition I've defined for my new method. Wow. So it becomes much more, uh, much simpler to, to generate a lot of content all at once because we are using those separate definitions instead of trying to kind of mash them together into a single process. Now, the, are these, uh, so I'm trying to wrap my head around a few things. So like would a, so does a, a lab download these files in a, a, a specific format that then they utilize in their own systems? Or would this be, a, is there a structure that you would give them to be able to utilize all of this stuff? Yeah, it's great. So what uh, what we have available, uh, 
you know, online on Qubit are, are what we call Cal sheets. Uh, and you could think of Cal sheet as a smart date sheet. You know, so instead of, instead of having, you know, something that's just a checklist, you know, with paper, you know, printed off a board or something, uh, or, or your Excel spreadsheet you've done that are static. Um, these, these, you know, are smart. They can take, they can take user defined points. They can take actual applied values, uh, at the time of test and they could adjust uh, the limits based on what the actual applied value is. Uh, and so as Michael was saying, we take the, the spec and the method combine those together and we get a Cal sheet that has uh, the test points at, and the tolerances and people can just fill that out uh, right there online, get their pass fail indication. Uh, you can add remarks uh, at, at you know every row as well as summary remarks. Uh, and we kind of use a footnote uh, marker notation so that uh, you can you can capture a lot of remarks and, mm -hmm. and see where they apply. Uh, and you can also uh, put notes and comments uh, for yourself uh, everywhere, right? If you just wanted to say, hey, this was kind of noisy or, or hey, this, you know, was doing this, you can put that at any point on there. Uh, and you save that and you can export those results to a CSV uh, so that you could put them into your system in some manner. Uh, or you can print off uh, a PDF and you basically use that PDF as the as the, the data sheet that would be attached to a calibration certificate cover page. Sure. Now, um, so I always think, and we, we were talking about, you guys have both been in on-site environments. So I always think back to, to my on-site guys, um, when, so would they be inputting their data through, like if they had a tablet, for instance, or going with the, you know, on-site, would they put in all their data through your website at, and then convert it and then uh, process it off in that CSV. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you could uh, you could enter the results uh, while you're out there uh, on site, uh, and then you know they're all saved uh, under your your user profile with your calibration history. And so, well, you know, when you get back to the lab at that point in time is when you could you know export export them to PDF and you know uh, add them as an attachment to something, or you could print them out. You know, a lot of people still are using hard paper. And yeah, can, yeah I, 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 I always try and get to change, <laughs> you know, especially the on-site guys that have to double document everything. I mean, it's, it's just too much, you know, if they could take the data at once and, you know, obviously if you have to update things, that's fine. But I always, I always worry about that double documentation thing. Yeah. And that's, and that's provided that they have connectivity, which is, um, it's, uh, it's less of an issue today than it was, you know, five or 10 years ago. And, you know, the, there, but there's there's still instances where, um, you know, security requirements or location or whatever, where, you know, the on-site technician, unfortunately, they they need to do a lot of pre-work and a lot of research uh, and have all of their equipment and their information and print out all of their data sheets because they're they're going to be out there in the field handwriting their results. Uh, and then coming back to the lab and transcribing them into a system of record or passing them off to someone to transcribe and uh, that 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 remains an issue uh, for for the time being but mm -hmm. uh, there 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 are some ideas and some technologies that uh, we believe uh, ultimately we'd be able to uh, eliminate that altogether uh, you know it's very similar to like a mobile checkout oh right yeah yeah, yeah I, I think too that you know it's it's 
a good point to say this is where it is now, but it's certainly not like the the end vision of where we're going. <laughs> oh, I'm <laughs> you know? glad you brought um, that up. That was going to be yeah. my next qu- my next question. Like, where, like, are you guys in um, a fully operational form? Like, can anybody sign up for it? Um, that type of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, in in line with our philosophy, right, and 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 a, and a value that we hold is that you know information should be freely available. And that, you know, the calibration community is a very collaborative community. You know, if you reach out to somebody in a Facebook group or on LinkedIn, or if you, 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 you have someone you were in the military with and they're working at another lab and you call them, people will share information and help each other out. Everybody's willing, willing to help and assist each other. Um, and, and so with that in mind, you know, we think that that information should be open and transparent and freely available. So uh, anybody can sign up for Qubit for free. Uh, all of the functionality that we've discussed so far is, is it's free uh, and, and not intended to be, you know, uh, charged for or licensed or, or have a subscription service. Uh, we do anticipate there, you know, what there will be value add or premier features that people will need right that they could sign up for uh, as those meet the needs of their laboratory uh, but yeah right now anybody can sign up uh, and they they can go in and they can you know find specifications they can find documents they can find cal sheets fill them out and save them um, print them out uh, and they and they can uh, contribute uh, to you know to the overall repository by by uploading their own things, which you know help put it into the queue for us to prioritize, um, and and then also uh, pass it over to Michael. Here's uh, that's that's also where they can access their Metcal Gold procedures. Yeah, we uh, last year, I guess it was. It's hard to keep track with the pandemic. Everything just kind of blurs together. It really does. Everything since 2019 is just one year. Um, <laughs> but we, we moved the, the Met Support Gold procedure library into Qubit uh, as well. It was previously hosted on the, the Flute Calibration website. Um, but what we're able to do having it in Qubit is we can actually link you know, those product profiles to the procedures that we have in the library. We're up over 15,000 procedures now. Um, so that if I want to see, you know, a manual and also, hey, there's also a, a gold procedure for it. Um, you know, future state is the ability for users to submit their own Metcal procedures through Qubit as well. So in addition to our library of our warranted procedures, um, and this goes back to something we used to do in the past and we stopped doing for a while, um, was having the ability for people to share their own procedures uh, if if they so desire. Um, obviously, not everybody will want to, but to have that option available to them. Well, and that's one of the things I liked when I looked at your web, the website for Qubit is putting on there, you know, taking that, you know, there's a lot of, I'll just say entities out there that feel that they're the, the metrology or, or some aspects of it are proprietary, you know, and it's, you know, I'm with you guys that the knowledge behind this stuff isn't a, a proprietary thing. You know, there's no secrets now a, a, a knowledge, deep knowledge of a, a piece of equipment or something like that. Sure. You know, that's, that's the things, things that labs 
can and should keep secret, you know, if they're, if they're experts in certain things, but when it comes to just the, the blanket knowledge, you know, and, and like you were talking about earlier, Mike, the breakdown of all of that, all of that, the specifications and, and, um, you know, the, the methods, you know, spec sheets, all that stuff, you know, those aren't things that, like you, I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm stuttering around a little bit, but I just agree so much with what you're, what you guys are saying, because I have witnessed it in person, you know, having to go back and forth with a team saying, no, the data sheet's not right yet. You know, this is wrong. This is wrong. You know, th- that process takes so much time. And some of you that are listening, if you haven't been a part of developing a lab's procedures or, um, having to deal with any of, of, of that, you know, a customer sending in new items that you've never even seen before, you know, and you're trying to come up with some sort of idea of where to start having an, uh, uh, resource like this is just incredibly valuable. Um, I, it, I'm glad you brought up that um, all those things that you said, Mike, because our number one question through our school groups and everything that any, you know, I asked, what do you have questions for, for the Qubit team? Number one, is it going to stay free for the, the general access? I think everybody I've talked to kind of anticipates that there's going to be advanced features, you know, ones that come to mind are uncertainties. You know, I could just imagine if all the Cal data for standards are in there as well. The stuff that you're doing, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics that can happen there. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And uncertainty is probably a great, great example. And, and the key advantage, right. Of having structured specifications and structured methods, uh, you know, is our ability uh, to dynamically generate a portfolio of uh you know, of uncertainty budgets based off best practices uh, and, and at least make templates or starting mm-hmm. points available to everybody. Uh, and, you, you know, you might need to add some laboratory specific contributors or environmental, you know, conditions or something like that. But, but at least we could get you, you know, 85 to 90% of the way there uh, effectively instantaneously, uh, which yeah, uh, you know, which would be a huge time saver uh, for people. But, um, but yeah, core functionality, you know, the 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 core things that are out there, uh, those those are intended to remain free because that that's just, as I said before, that's just consistent with our mission and our vision. Well, and that, like you said, that is a huge thing in itself. Just the amount of time there. Yeah, I, I think um, you know you mentioned too, Ryan, about um, you asked kind of how how people would make use of this information that's there. And another way that um, in the short term we'll be getting to is uh, Met Team is, is another product that I'm responsible for on the Fluke side. Um, and one of the things that we're planning for the short term, like sometime this year is the most likely point for it, uh, is being able to create manual templates in MetTeam, which is our kind of functionality that's similar to a Cal sheet. It's that, you know, data points and here's the tolerances and all that. Being able to generate those based on Qubit data through a direct connection to Qubit. So if I'm in MetTeam, I click a button and I can search for, you know, this model in Qubit and then click a button and it creates a template in MetTeam directly from the Qubit data. So there's no, you know, manual entry and, Oh, yeah, I made a that. typo here. Right. Exactly. Yeah, flubbing. <laughs> yeah. And so like, that's something that we, you know, we can do on our end, but then looking at that same type of integration moving forward, that's where, 
you know, you kind of get that growth and, and um, expansion of what it's capable of over time, being able to integrate qubit data with other systems is another great example of that kind of, you know, advanced feature. Um, I mentioned OneCal. That's an area where we're looking at that as well. Um, one of the things we did with OneCal that helped lead us toward this pivot to qubit mm-hmm. was um, OneCal, when we were launching it, was focused on pressure calibration. Um, and and so we had a customer where we went and sourced, you know, all of the data for the pressure gauges that they were, were calibrating. And then we use that to generate procedures for them. And that's how we knew that this would work. (laughs) We tested it with pressure gauges. um, And that's probably why I I haven't, you know, I haven't looked lately, but I think pressure gauges are one of our biggest uh, areas. Yeah. A hundred, hundred thousand models of pressure gauges in Qubit right now. (laughs) Um, Those are, those are pretty generic. I mean, I can't even imagine like if we were starting to talk about options on different, you know, old school 5700s and, you know, 5790s and stuff like that. There's, there's a, is it going to cover all the different options or is it kind of one of those that you just have to snap, snapshot what each, what each, each option is, and then it can kind of be added on. Yeah. So the approach that, that I took with the team when we were starting these is um, you kind of have some placeholders in the model numbers, right? And if there was an impact to the specification, we have each of those individually. So if it's, you know, this, this particular field in the model number means it's a 0.5% accuracy instead of 0.25, that's going to be a separate listing in qubit. But if it's, you know, one, two, three, or four, and that means that it's either a backlit display or a non-backlit display or an LCD or an LED, that doesn't have an impact. So we have a, just a, a wild card there in the model number. So, sure. um, and, and as we start gathering these, you know, in addition to the, the technical data, there's a lot of attributes about these instruments that we've collected around, you know, the size and the color and the, all of those aspects can also be gathered there to allow us to differentiate between them. Um, I mean, a lot of the type of stuff we have in there now, half the stuff doesn't even have a model number on it when you look at it, right? It's all about the, the manufacturer and the range and the, the, you know, you, maybe you get some kind of indication of, of what the um, specific model that you would have ordered is but with that catalog model number. A lot of the times it's not even on there to, to know what it is. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. having more of that information helps to, to kind of differentiate those. Yeah. And it does come down to, you know, that, cause it, also that knowledge of, you know, what is really differentiating between all of these different pressure gauges, which is, in essence, nothing in a lot of cases, you know, depending right. on where you get them from, you know, yeah. if it's a two, three, two gauge, it's a two, three, two gauge, you know, in a lot of ways. Right. That's well, so a- what, what, what's the, what's next for you guys? Is there, um, like community aspects that you're looking for? I know we already mentioned that people can reach you guys and everything. Um, what are there more, um, projects in the near future that you need specific people for what what do you guys got coming up yeah so it, we we uh i'll kind of go back to last year a little bit so what what we did last year uh for several months uh over the summer uh is is really went on an innovation exercise right discovery of like how we found that while well, finding specs and interpreting specs and 
and calculating tolerances from specs correctly uh, is an issue uh, for the calibration community. Mm-hmm. Well, what are other things that are out there? And and there are there are a lot. You know, there are a lot of things we, you know, it, it's interesting that you know technology and society and manufacturing and you know computer and mobile technology has all advanced really really quickly mm-hmm. uh yet calibration laboratories and 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 you know the science of measurement it is very slow to adopt change uh and there's there's lots of reasons for that right there's lots of well if it's not broke don't fix it and well i need to protect my data and i you know there's a lot of reasons for why uh change is adopted pretty slowly um w- within within calibration and so we spent uh, about five months uh, exclusively exploring various workflows, various issues, and and really looking at how do we build how do we build a framework that allows us uh, to be able to rapidly uh, tackle those those items in the future, right? Because if you look at them independently. They could, you know, they could be a year or more effort in and of themselves, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of them intersect somewhere, and we could we could cause more disruption and more waste and more more pain point in the cal lab, you know, if we didn't do it correctly. So um, we're really on a like a research and definition exercise. Right? Interesting. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to treat every specification the same. Uh, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to treat every cal method the same. Uh, and and we spent a lot of time figuring out how to treat every calibration the same with our mm-hmm. measurement model behind the scenes. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of being judicious about that on really understanding these things to get down to first principles uh, rather than just, you know, uh, different. <laughs> Interesting. So that actually brought up another question for me. So if there's multiple like items with, you know, overlapping disciplines or, or, or things of that nature, is there, or methods I should say. Um, so is there ways to in, in the system piece together what standards you actually have kind of going along with what you're talking about right then? Like, so is there an ability to choose, um, I guess the, the standard that's being utilized in the Cal procedure that you're, you're looking at, cause that could change the test points, right? I mean, obviously, or I guess it would, wouldn't change the test points necessarily. I'm arguing with myself now. Well, it, it can, um, it can change steps, right? It can change. Yeah. Uh, cause uh, I mean, if we're talking about a procedure, it can change procedural s- setup steps having different standards and things. So there is some complexity there. So is that handled in the framework as well? Uh, it will be. And, okay. you know, we don't, we don't have that, we don't have that functionality today, but that's a, that's a great example of, you know, we have a method that says uh, these are the nominal test points and let's say it's uh, 20 ohms and 200 mm-hmm. ohms and two kilo ohms. Those are the nominal test points. Uh, and then we can put limits around those test points of, how far can the nominal deviate uh, and still be an acceptable test point? You know, for example, when you are using a gauge block, it's never three inches. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's three inches plus or minus something. So how much can you deviate? Or you might have to ring a couple of ga- blocks together to get 
close to that value, what's allowable, right? But if it's a three inch test point, one inch obviously is too far away from what you wanted. And to your point about equipment, if we take that 20 ohm, 200 ohm, two kilo ohm, well, if the standard I'm using is a Fluke 5522, I can get those values. But if I'm using a 5730, I'm going to get 19, 190, in 19k right so right uh so the that's an example of where yeah we could we could based on the specifications of the reference used automatically adjust the applied value uh for that that nominal test point interesting that's cool yeah it, it reminds me a lot of uh just in a in a tangent way the stuff that we go through trying to figure out. So what exactly does a level one technician need to know in these disciplines? You know, you guys are really having to stretch your brain to, to think through this stuff. And I can feel it as I'm just trying to interview you, like trying to piece together some of these puzzles because you're really creating something that out of nothing, right? Nothing that, that doesn't exist. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I think that, you know, that's, that's really a, a big part of this has been, taking a step back from any specific application and trying to look at this from, you know, the bare bones. Um, so much of, of what we see in, in the industry and especially in, in industry software is, you know, it starts in one area and then kind of grows from there. And Metcal is a, a, a as big a, a problem child here as anybody else. It was a electrical calibration software. And yeah, it can do anything. I stand by that. Metcal will do anything you want <laughs> if you know, if you know what you're doing. Um, but those core like building blocks are still very, very based in electrical calibration. Um, and there's this stigma that you know every discipline is unique, and and you know I need to do my pressure calibration differently than I do my RF calibration. And what we've done with Qubit is really, you know, rejected that idea and said, mm -hmm. a calibration is a calibration, a measurement is a measurement, you know, using one of X number of ways to do that. But ultimately, there is a way to look at this generically enough that we can cover all of them in one approach. And, and, that's kind of been that difference maker for us is making sure that, you know, we still haven't found, I mean, we're, we're open to the idea that there is one, but at this point we haven't found a measurement that we couldn't model with this measurement model that we've been, that we've built Qubit around. And, and that's really the key for it moving forward. I like it. And that, that kind of fits in with what I teach our guys where we're, we're teaching them calibration outside a procedure because who knows what procedure they'll get, especially at this moment in time, right? Until something like Qubit comes out. So we have to make sure they understand the measurement period, no matter what button they're pressing on what item. So it, it feels very similar. And, and I think uh, long-term projects like these, you know, and, and I, I, I see a lot of synergy there. Those are going to maybe speed up our industry where it hasn't in the past right mike you know like you were saying it's been the 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 cal world has been in metrology world has been slow to to update itself and to modernize and i think that's like you said there's many reasons but probably good for in in many ways but then also we do need to innovate 
you know, especially to keep up with manufacturers or, or they will have to find ways around us, right? As, as technicians, you know, if we don't, if, and, and as an industry, we aren't improving our overall effectiveness, you know? So projects like this really excite me. Yeah, we, there's a, there are, uh, is a lot of activity going on around the world, really. You know, and, you know, people from, you know, some people probably heard like the IOT internet of things, uh, industry 4.0. Um, there's a big project called the DCC, which is the, the digital calibration certificate. Uh, that project right, is, right. you know, being, uh, headed up by the national laboratory of Germany, uh, PTB. Uh, and, and there's a lot of people involved in this. So the, the need, the need for a digital transformation of calibration and metrology data has been around for a long time. Uh, NCSLI uh, has a, a committee on metrology information. Uh, it's the 141 committee. And, uh, you know, Mark, uh, Mark Custer and, um, and Mike Schwartz are highly involved in that. And, and you know, a lot of people doing work on how do we define uh, taxonomy? How do we define <laughs> units for digital stuff? You know? Yeah. And he actually came on in season one and talked about it. Yeah, it was, it, it's, it's again, it's one of those things that, um, I see, I see how it will be so awesome in the future, but man, the, the project is huge. You know, you, everything that you guys are, are doing and everything on, on these lines is just, especially when you're trying to get everything it's, it's huge, but I, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun project and, and, and it's also like, it's also cool, right? Because, um, like we've been there, right? <laughs> like, right. We, I've gone on site and had, had the customer walk up to me and say, Hey, while you're here, can you calibrate this? And I might, you know, and maybe I'm on the road, I'm out of town. I, you know, I might have to take that thing back to the hotel and research overnight so that I can figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow when I go, when I go back, you know, or there's, there's a lot of situations, um, where, you know, you just get stuck or, or, you know, standards or information changes out there, but you're not aware of it, right? You're in your lab, you're, you're in your lab, you're managing your backlog, you're going to your customer site, you're taking care of the things that you need to take care of. You, you, you're not aware that, you know, a, a new revision, uh, of an ASTM got released, you know, and wants this, or you're not aware that the, so, you know, we, we really want to kind of help facilitate that, uh, common repository of, of knowledge. You know, here's, here's the information, here's access to the information. Um, and you had mentioned community aspect. Um, yeah, we, we, we anticipate having, you know, uh, forums and, you know, the ability for people to, you know, in your user profile, go and uh, go and upload a white paper you wrote, you know, or or you know maybe you made a maybe you made a YouTube video, and and we can tag that video with with information. So you know, someone uh, someone's calibrating a, a micrometer and they've never used an optical flat before. Right there, while they're doing the task, uh, the video is available because we know that that applies to that type of calibration, and you could just kind of get trained right on the spot, you know, or refreshed right on the spot. Uh, and, and so it's just really about knowledge share for everybody, right? right, uh, right. Interaction with everybody um, and coming to consensus. Like that's, that's one of the things is, 
um, you know, we, we, we can, we can agree to disagree on, on certain specific implementations, but, um, the community is really good about coming to consensus on, you know, the, the general practice, the general approach. Uh, right. Yeah. Not the, not the specific where, you know, people feel like they're losing out on their, you know, their keen knowledge on a machine, like we were saying, but yeah, I, I don't think we can go any further very well if we don't all start working together in some of these solutions, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you in some of the, I'm a part of like the educations group on NCSLI and it is important to get as a, as a community for us to all, especially as we're getting later on in our careers, those of us that are in later, the later part of our career to, to start giving back with some of the knowledge and some solutions. And I really commend you guys. you know, I, I, I had the questions, you know, and, and, you know, how is this going to work going forward, especially with the costs of it? And I think some people are going to be really happy to hear that this is going to be available. Uh, I know I want to teach my students about it because you know, I, I like to make sure that my students know their resources because then they can take it to the lab that hasn't heard about Qubit, you know, and maybe, and maybe save some major headaches when they get there. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, for the last few years been teaching a, uh, a, a half day NCS live tutorial, uh, about in, interpreting specifications and, I, you know, try not to be the, the fluke plug guy, right? <laughs> but, but having those conversations, you just can't help but bring up Qubit, right? Like, um, there's so many examples uh, looking back, you know, all the examples that I go through in that class, I'm like, man, here's all the different ways that I could not understand what this spec actually means, or I can get it something that I can look at in a, you know, human and machine readable format that, that is uniform. Yeah, it's incredible. It's exciting, though, because um, just I, whenever we talk about Metcal, you know, and you were talking about its origins, you know, I've been to so many places that they have, you know, their Metcal guy, you know, and he's self-taught himself how to make every procedure and all that. And usually they look a few years older than they should. And, you know, I, I I'm happy that uh, there's there's ways for that learning curve because it is one i mean that's something that comes up constantly for us here at the school is how um to even where we were going to do start doing some um some uh free courses for customers of calibration so that they could kind of understand how how they want to communicate some some specifications and tolerances to cal labs you know especially if it's something that they created you know um and you know what's fascinating is maybe over time as as these things all kind of coalesce it will be interesting if um as these manufacturers have you know calibration providers come in and they're aware of qubit as they're making things they can provide you with the specifications you know that'd be a, kind of a cool down the road thing where the manufacturers are providing them to you and, and that can get into your system before they even release something. Yeah, that's, that's definitely been an area we've talked about, um, for sure. And, and even internally, you know, um, what, what can we do to, to get to the point where our own specs are in a format that's easier for us to consume? Um, I, it's, uh, I was going to say something. I lost it. <laughs> oh, no worries. But yeah, I mean, the, the data, I mean, just purely being able to, to crunch some of this data as it grows is going to be really fascinating as well. That was the other, the other point I was going to bring up. Are you guys, if people input data, is that 
is it is it separated or um, secure in a way? I, I guess I should probably ask that. Yeah, data data is is a basically a uh, a snapshot uh, instance of that particular cal sheet uh, that is uh, associated with that user, and mm-hmm. um, there there is a an option on your user profile to to choose to make those available to people. Um, you know, some people they may only have the test points in there; they're not putting anything else in there. Uh, oh, yeah. And you know, you, you want to be careful about you know confidentiality. Uh, but we we don't like we, since it's not a formal calibration certificate, and Qubit doesn't have a concept of customers and references and like it doesn't know all of that all it knows is there was a there was a thing that got calibrated uh, and you can fill out some summary information like an asset number and a serial number uh, and and things like that uh, but it uh, they're in the current form they're all separate and distinct instances of just a cal sheet but we uh, to your point we we do anticipate the ability long term Right. Mm-hmm. to be able to um, do amazing things with lots of calibration information. Yeah. And so if we, if we have lots of people calibrating and we have access to lots of results, anonymized results, right? It's, right. Just, yeah. test, it's just test points and, and tolerances and, and measurement results. Then we could get to a point that we could say, you know, your, uh, your widget uh, is is performing better than the average of this model number. Um, you you have a cal interval that is this, but based on the analysis of ten thousand of these things and a hundred thousand calibrations on those ten thousand things, you, you might want to reduce your interval. You don't have to, right? But you might want to because we see where the risk is, or your interval is a little too. Short, you know, you you might just think you have to do it annually, and maybe it is a one-year spec. But the data shows that these these things will hold their spec for twenty months on average. So you might cons- you know, and the, it it's about right balancing quality uh, and efficiency. You know, it's like we want to make sure that the quality is there. You know, uh, obviously, at the same time. Uh, we don't necessarily need to calibrate just for the sake of calibrating, you know, right. in one example. Um, and, and you brought up uncertainty before, if we have a whole bunch of results of a whole bunch of things, we could automatically populate drift, for example, based on a population of these devices, or we could automatically uh, populate, um, you know, the, the average noise or, or something like that and let you know while you're calibrating, uh, Hey, you're, your meter you're calibrating right now is noisier than it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where my, my mind went when I think of all that data, it's like, I know there's plenty of customers. I mean, there's regulated customers that have to do the year or even shorter, you know, with certain, certain aspects, but there's a lot of customers out there that if they had that kind of information, you know, they would, they would in some cases be more willing to do calibration like have calibration be a part of their systems because they don't have to do it yearly. You know, if I I can see it going multiple different ways where it can be very beneficial for customers as well as the, as the labs having that kind of reliability data 
just in general. I mean, that's so that's that's a crazy amount of information. You know, getting that large data set obviously requires a lot of a lot of a lot of work and time and, and integration and stuff. But the you know that's that's where the future is going, right? That right. we see that we see that you know we see that everywhere else uh, in the world that. Um, you know, information is being digitized, digital transformations happening, integration is happening, um, you know, and, and with technologies like edge computing and, and um, graph DB, you know, there's, there's ways that, um, you know, AI can provide insights uh, and uncover things that uh, we might not even deliberately think about going to look for. Right. Yeah. And so that's uh, that's really an amazing possibility of, of 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 having having you know AI and business analytics be able to be able to point out a potential concern somewhere that we never would have even thought about you know because we uh, you would you would have to have a deep understanding of a particular thing in a lot of data to to even realize there's a correlation. Right? Yeah sometimes an impossible amount of data unless you have a significant amount of the world's, you know, calibration or metrology population connected in some way. Yeah. Yeah. It's more incentive to, to be a part of it. You know, we all together can make a big difference in that. That's for sure. I don't, I, I've been trying to think as we're talking about it, what some downsides would be, cause you're always going to have the detractors. You're going to have the ones that like, that's, we, we've been doing this for 30 years. Like we don't need to, get into this data stuff, but really it, um, I mean, a lot of the customers I deal with, they're always wanting more and more data and, or they're going to ask for it, you know, the specifics, if there are issues. So having something, you know, especially when they, you know, if you're trying to assist a customer and they're asking you questions like, cause I, you guys have had this, I'm sure this has been perfectly fine every year up until now, how, how is it now failing? And you can be like, look, there's plenty of reliability data on this stuff. You know, uh, here at Qubit, the, the Qubit guys, they've seen that these things fail about on every fifth year. You know, I, I can just, it, my mind's going wild with the different ways I could use that data, you know, <laughs> especially dealing with customers, you know, cause I've just, I've heard it all. Yeah. There's, there's so many areas where, um, <laughs> I think sometimes we get so excited about like the the future possibilities that we we like forget where we are now yeah <laughs> like yeah you know mike and i whenever we get on the phone with each other we just like we'll go off on a tangent and we'll be you know 20 years into the future about all the things we can get done and we're like wait a minute we're we're not there yet <laughs> i know it, it sounds all too familiar to my own situation yeah like i have so many ideas for teaching you know and as you can imagine developing a procedure developing a curriculum same same type of same type of stress i guess huh yeah well, to, to end the show, I, and especially since you guys are on-site technicians, I want to bring back a, a question that I used to ask in season one. Do you guys have any weird calibrations that you've done over your time? Like I've always mentioned that, like I've, I had to do temperature sensors in the morgue next to dead bodies before. Have you guys had anything, anything odd over your career? Well, I've had lots of odd, uh, individual experiences and trips and things and you know stuff that went on but i think my favorite i think my favorite one is the oddest 
device that I was requested to go out in the field and calibrate. And, and it was a, it's called a partial flume. Uh, and you actually see these uh, all over the place. Most of us just don't know that that's what they are. And if you look at a culvert or a ditch or something, you see a, you see a kind of trapezoid shaped spillway where, you know, it kind of comes down at an angle and then there's like a little bit of a chute and it, it looks like it's just channeling the water away from the bank and then going over a little spillway. Well, that's actually a partial flume. And the angles are specific and there's a drop off in there that's specific. And uh, there's, there's what's called head height, which is how high the arc of the water exiting the partial flume is. And based off that head height, you can calculate the flow rate. Wow. And so I was asked to, to go out and uh, calibrate uh, a partial flume uh, along with a, you know, it had a, a, an optical detector and a, and a chart recorder with it. Um, but you think about these things, they might be up on a, you know, a, a road somewhere, a back road or up in the mountains and things like that. So uh, that maintenance crews or somebody going along doing inspection or even just driving by, they can get an estimation of, of a flow rate and they can inform people downstream at like your wastewater treatment plant. Hey, a big a big amount of water is coming in. And so you could start being proactive to control gates or release stuff on, you know, before uh, it gets to you. And so, yeah, I, that, I think that's probably the most interesting on-site calibration item I've done. That's um, a good, that's a good one. Cause I've never heard of that before. And it makes sense though, because water will erode things. So I'm sure it has to be checked what yearly. Yeah, the one the one I was doing, uh, I think was was annually, and it was it was really primarily around the the optical detector and the chart recorder that accompanied it. Um, mm. uh, but but it was just really interesting that you know you you go out there, there's this partial flume, and off to the side of it is what's called a stilling chamber that correlates to that head height. And you know, oh, you're, gotcha. Okay, you're using a you're using a steel rule to measure well how high is it. That's how much mm-hmm. water is flowing through right now. What's the optical detector and chart recorder say? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Weird. What about you, Michael? I didn't mean to put you on on the spot, but yeah, you, no, you, I, I I think I found one. <laughs> it's hard thinking back. Um, I have the ones that like you know were annoying, but the, sure, those are good too. You the, can tell us those too. <laughs> I think the the probably the roughest day I've had doing on site cal um, was. I, uh, I was going to do, it was, uh, there were welders and this was like three hours away from our lab. And so it wasn't like I could go look at the thing and see what I was going to need. I, so, right. you know, I'm doing research again, would have been great to have Cubit. Um, like yeah. we had welders to the list. Um, but there were a couple of them that I had to do. And one of them was, it was a stud welder. And then the other was like an automated, it was like a computerized welder where it would like, you would like put in the program almost like a CNC, mm. but it would weld. And I found specs for these things. And um, on the the stud welder, I remember I needed to get like a current reading off of the like the line that was coming into the welder. And we didn't have a standard that like would work. Uh, and so I had to go to Home Depot and buy a clamp meter 
which I then calibrated in the lab before I left. <laughs> nice. And, I, and I'm leaving in the morning and it was like, you know, 6 a.m. And it was during the winter and I slipped on ice and rolled my ankle and fell on my butt. Uh, drove three hours with my rolled ankle, got there. And as I'm doing the automated uh, or the computer controlled one, the floor like dropped off to the side and I didn't notice. And so I stepped there as I'm trying to get around the back of this thing and re-rolled my ankle. Oh no. Uh, as I'm getting in there to connect, it was like just the word. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those were the, probably the strangest ones I had to kind of like figure out. Uh, man, trying to figure out what the heck it was supposed to be doing as I was, I, you know, I had like a technician there. I was like, okay, make it weld, I guess. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And always having some, a customer that you're trying to get you help run the machine. Oh, yeah. I always hate yeah. that. My favorite was always when, uh, you know, the engineer would come back after you, you did their, you know, their scope or their spec and they'd be like, uh, what, what'd you do to it? You broke it. Cause they don't keep track of their settings. Right. right. It's like, you change, you reset it to the default settings. They're like, I don't know how to do this. Um, and you'd always get like the older with the analog scopes and they'd have like little lines drawn on their, their front panel yeah. to mark where their dials were turned to. Like, man. <laughs> I've had, I, I've gone to places where they have huge sheets of pictures printed out that they just go and they, you know, a lot of calibrations or, or we'll just call met, uh, metrology processes are done by just straight up blind following, you yep. know, written in pictures. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Those are good though. I like them. Yeah. Maybe in the future I'll have to, especially people that have onsite, we'll have to ask them what the worst thing that's happened that they've witnessed on onsite. Cause I, I've witnessed a guy, not me, but he, a, a test stand that dealt with oil filled an entire floor of a room with oil. You know, a, a lot of those fun ones, but yeah, I have plenty of breaking thing stories. Oh well, yeah. I have very expensive breaking thing stories. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to keep those for the next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, have you back on as things progress and as uh, the new things come out, you know, we can keep up to date with you and, and keep all of our listeners and the, the students up to date with uh, what you guys are doing with this project. Cause I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on. It's been, uh, been always fun to talk about it. I feel like we could just go on and on about Qubit. Well, and we probably will, especially as time goes down the road. I, I, yeah. A good introduction today, but then uh, we can, maybe we can get into a little bit more specifics as, as uh, things get a little bit more advanced. Thanks for, thanks for having us. It's a lot of, a lot of fun and, and, you know, it's really, really, really cool to have the opportunity to, you know, get the word out and, you know, also appreciate everything you're, you're doing with getting, getting curriculum built, right? Because we need that. We need that out there for exactly. all of us. Exactly. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the show and we'll, we'll talk to you guys next time. 